Today's scripture is from Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who had come to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor 
because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good afternoon. I'll try again. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Thank you, Christina, for um, reading the whole chapter. Thank you, everybody, for your patience reading the whole chapter there. Um, I prefer that. I, I like that we get to uh, stand and read extended period or extended lengths of uh, scripture together. So, my name is Keith. Um, for those of you who are new or who are visiting. Uh, I want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. It's good to see your face. It's good to see you here. Um, I'm a pastoral resident here at Redemption Tucson, and my family and I, we've been here for about six and a half months. So uh, not new to the Arizona heat. If you are new to the Arizona heat, uh, you've had a couple of weeks. It's been, it's been rough, but um, am new to Tucson. So uh, we have been going through a series in the book of Nehemiah the last few weeks. And so if you're just jumping in right now, we're in chapter five, but don't worry, I'll, I'll give a little overview. Um, but uh, chapter five is an interesting chapter because it's wedged in between two chapters about external opposition, threats from outside, but this is a chapter about internal opposition, as you could, you could see. In uh, September of 2015, feels like ancient history at this point, September of 2015, newspaper headlines called Martin Shkreli the most hated man in America. Maybe this sounds familiar, but Martin Shkreli was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company called Turing. And what he did during his tenure as the CEO of this company is that he purchased the manufacturing rights to an anti-parasitic drug called diaparam. And he, this drug was mainly used to treat AIDS and cancer patients. Um, and he raised the price of this drug from $13.50 per pill to over $750 per pill. Yeah, for cancer, yep. Um, and rightly so, America was indignant about this guy, right? The kind of our internal sense as a country, we had this sense of injustice because what Martin Shkreli was doing is that he was, for his own economic benefit, for his own gain, he was taking advantage of the most vulnerable, people who needed that pill to live, people who were in a position where they had no choice but to pay the $750 per pill, and so that enraged America. I think we're pretty quick, though, to point our finger at a gross uh, injustice like that and to forget that um, we are actually a lot like Mr. Shkreli. We pursue our own self-interest often at the cost of other people. Um, this may feel like an abstract example, but the clothes that you're wearing, the electronics that you're using, um, do you know where they came from? I know I don't. I don't know that I can speak to where this shirt came from, but often the clothing and the electronics that we have, they're made in inhumane conditions overseas uh, by people who are considered wage slaves. Is that not us gaining selfishly at the cost of other people, the cost of the vulnerable? That feels abstract maybe, but what about this? 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women uh, are regular users of adult explicit content. That's four out of 10 of the people in this room. What is that if it is not 
taking advantage of people who are in a vulnerable position for selfish gain. People who are so vulnerable that they are literally selling their bodies, right? And you gain some pleasure. See, we are quick to blame Mr. Shkreli, but it's harder to turn in on ourselves. What about this? Um, when you use social media and you say things that maybe are not so kind about others uh, because of a political preference, maybe because they, they said something you didn't like, or maybe you just you gossip about someone, what is that if it is not selfish gain, making yourself look better, making yourself feel better at the cost of someone who's not there. They, they can't defend themselves. They're literally defenseless, right? See, this is a propensity of the human heart. We're broken. And in our brokenness, whether you are a CEO setting the prices of anti-parasitic drugs or you are the church gossip, all of us share in this condition that we seek our own selfish gain and it often costs the people around us. So when we sit in a room like this, which surely includes people that we have offended, people that we have hurt, people that we've angered, people that we've um, maybe shared different opinions on social media with that they didn't like, how do we come back to the table as one people? How do we come back together? Is there a path to reconciliation for God's people? That's the question. Well, the passage that we're looking at tonight is from a passage about internal conflict, and I think it addresses exactly that. We're going to see that God has a different vision of justice than our culture, and it's a good vision of justice. And because of that, you and I have a path to being reconciled with one another. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump into the context of Nehemiah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be present here in this room that we would sense your spirit, that you would speak to us as we read Nehemiah, as John Calvin said, that you would come clothed to us in the scriptures, Jesus. We pray that it would be your voice that's heard here, not Keith McMillan's. Speak through me, speak through Nehemiah. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible, um, we're in the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. It's kind of like a third of the way in. Um, don't feel ashamed to open up the table of contents if you need that or scroll through and find it in your app. Um, Nehemiah chapter 5, and the kind of the broad context, so God created the world, um, and God chose a people to rescue the world, and that people was called Israel. But Israel, um, after being led into slavery by Egypt, were then led out of slavery by a, name, a man named Moses. Uh, they were in the wilderness for 40 years, and then eventually they inherited a land that God gave them, and they wanted a king. So they got a king, but then the king's ancestors, or his descendants rather, um, they chose to follow the idols of the nations around Israel rather than to follow God. Um, and so then eventually they got taken into exile. They got conquered, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. Um, and then they got conquered again. The Babylonians got conquered by another empire called Persia. And so once Persia took over, they allowed their conquered peoples to go back to their lands, their homelands. And so this is where we're at in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of these men who's leading a group of Israelites back into his land because Persia has allowed him to go back. And what Nehemiah's job is, is to build these walls around the city of Jerusalem. 
uh, but he encounters opposition because there have been people who have been living in Jerusalem for probably around a century, for generations, certainly. And so he encounters opposition from these people. And wedged between these two chapters that are about opposition from the outside, we have this chapter that's about opposition from within the congregation of Israel. That's chapter 5. Let's take a look. Chapter 5, verse 1, says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives, now, whenever you see the word outcry, uh, you should be thinking about injustice. You should be thinking about oppression because this is a word that it comes up and it repeats in the Old Testament quite a bit. It comes up in the Exodus narrative about when Israel is in slavery. Um, this is a word that indicates that the people are so desperate that the only place that they have to turn is to cry out to God and to hope, God, hear me, hear me in my plight hear me in the injustice that I'm experiencing right now. And so we're kind of tuned into this word outcry as you read the Old Testament, and you're thinking a great outcry arose against Egypt or against uh, Tyre and Sidon, Philistia, Canaan, Babylon. But there's a gut punch that comes in this very first sentence because look what it says. There was an outcry against their Jewish brothers. There's something severely wrong here an outcry against their own people. This is family business. This is an internal conflict that's happening here. The people of God are divided. We don't know anything about that in 2021, do we? <laughs> the people of God divided. In some ways, the last year and a half has felt like the hammer of political ideologies has come smashing through the glass building of the church and fragmented us into a million little pieces. We know division today, and they knew division then. It's not new. It happened even under Nehemiah's watch. It was an outcry. And what was the outcry? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 2, it says this, There were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us go get grain that we may eat and keep alive. These are people who have nothing. They don't have any land. They don't have any possessions. Their only hope to stay alive is to go to the food pantry, but the food pantry's locked. They can't get in, right? The second group, verse 3, it says, there are also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. See, this group now is taking out a loan to get food, but the collateral they're putting up for their loan is their field. So they're, they're selling their field to buy the seed. They're selling their means of making money to get a meal. Have you ever noticed when you drive through the impoverished parts of town that you see auto title loan places? You see payday cash? Yeah? What is that if it's not this, right? It's selling the title, using the title of your car um, to borrow against, uh, to get a, a high-interest loan, and knowing that you're not going to pay it back. That's what's happening here. They know they're not getting their field back. And then there's the third group. And the third group is the saddest group of them all. It says in, in verse 4, and there are those who said, we've borrowed money. They already went to the title loan place because they had to pay taxes. But now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves 
and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. This last group has reached the end of their rope. The only move that they have left, the only card they have left to play is that they sell their kids into slavery. This is just utter desperation. This is an outcry to the Lord. They need help. And see, the context here is you see that there's external realities, there's famine, there's taxes, but there's also something that's going on here that is not obvious. There's some kind of exploitation that's happening here because verse 6 says this. This is Nehemiah. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And then he draws up charges. He calls a great assembly. He puts the nobles and the officials on trial. He puts them right in front of the whole congregation. And he says this, you're exacting interest each from his brother. So Nehemiah's response here is he's righteously angry about this. There's some kind of injustice that's happening amongst the poor. Why is he angry? Well, first of all, uh, according to Leviticus, according to Deuteronomy, it's illegal for Jews to exact interest, to charge interest on loans to other Jews. That's against the Old Testament law. Secondly, uh, it's against the Old Testament law to, it's not against the law actually to sell yourself into slavery, but you have to be considered a hired hand and then released after the sixth year. But it is against the law to be sold as a slave. You can't be a slave. But also, he's livid because they're not acting like the people of God. The people of God love justice and mercy. They walk in kindness and humility. They're not looking to make a buck off of this disaster. They're not walking like the people of God. See, these people didn't need a loan. They needed a gift, right? And lastly, he's upset. Look at what he says in verse 9. Skip down a little bit. He says, The thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies. He's saying, because you're not acting like the people of God, because you're disobeying the laws I've set out for you, you're actually damaging God's name in the world. Your witness is damaged because of this internal division. So how is Nehemiah going to respond? This first section, this first movement, I call it the outcry. The second section here is called the restoration. Let's see how Nehemiah moves forward. In verse 10, uh, starting where it says, let, let us, let us abandon this exacting of interest. This is Nehemiah telling them what to do now. These are the instructions. Let us abandon this, this exacting of interest, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, uh, and oil that you've been exacting from them. So what's the judgment? Um, First of all, what's not in the judgment? I think, let's point that out. What's not in the judgment, which is shocking to our kind of our American Western ears, is there's no punishment. Look back over it. Is there any punishment in there? Do they get a fine, jail time, community service, anything? No, they get nothing. And that's offensive to our cultural vision of justice because our cultural vision of justice prefers vengeance. We love vengeance. Who are the most famous superheroes in American culture? The Avengers. <laughs> are you serious? 
there's an entire genre of movie that's built on vengeance justice, right? You think of Liam Neeson and he, he gets a phone call and somebody kicked his dog, right? And he's like, I'm gonna kill all of you, right? That's basically how all these movies, um, the plot is very simple. You have caused an offense and I will exact vengeance on all of you. This is every John Wick movie, right? We love vengeance in American culture. That's our version, that's our vision of justice. We want to pay back the offenders, right? Pay them back. But God's vision of justice is not like that. And praise God, because we don't want Liam Neeson hunting us down. (laughs) Because we're all implicated. We're all guilty. It's not a simple thing where, like, there's these bad guys who are, like, really not complex in all those movies, right? We're all implicated. We're all selfish. And God's vision of justice is not vengeance, but it's restoration. Look at what it says. He tells them to stop exacting interest. He tells them to give back what they took and to cancel the debt. Stop exacting interest, give back what you took, cancel the debt. But that would not play well in our current vision of justice, right? Can you imagine a credit card company? We're not going to charge 18% interest anymore. In fact, we're going to give you back all the money that we've taken and all the interest that you've paid, right? That would not happen today, right? But God's vision of justice is not paying back the offender. It's paying back the offended. It's not paying back the offender. It's paying back the offended. And Nehemiah tells them to restore what they took, and look what they say in verse 12. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Wow, that was easy. (laughs) That was easy. That was the easiest confrontation and resolve I've ever seen, right? Like, we'll do it. We'll do it. And I was baffled as I read this the first time. I thought, how, maybe there's just more to the story we don't know, right? But then I started to think, no, I think that the people of God knew they weren't acting like the people of God. I think that they experienced conviction through God's word and that they repented. It's time for a heart check. If someone comes up to you and they say, you've hurt me, you've offended me, you've caused me uh, an injustice, you've gossiped about me, how quickly are you to move to repentance? Because I know where I'm at. I moved to defensiveness. Now you misunderstood me. Or I move to dismissiveness, right? Like, like, oh, that wasn't a big deal. Come on, move on. Or I move to wanting to fight, right? Or say sorry and move on and, you know, just, and then just hope you never see them again, right? That's actually my MO. But that's not what repentance is. Repentance is stopping admitting that what you have done has offended the other person, has offended God, and turning away. They stop, they give back, they make it right, and they stop exacting interest. They turn away. They repent. God's word moved the congregation to repentance. Does God's word move you to repentance? Nehemiah then makes them swear to it because he doesn't believe it. He's a little cynical. (laughs) He calls the priests out. He says, put your hand on the Bible, and guess what? If you shake these people down, God's going to shake you out. That's what he does. God's watching, and he wants to make sure that they know 
they got to follow through with this. they got to follow through with this plan. So the outcry is resolved. And it's resolved not through vengeance, but it's resolved through restoration. And then Nehemiah pivots in the last little section. He gives us the model of servant leadership, what it should look like. So we've got the outcry, the restoration, and now the servant leader. Let's take a look at verse 14. So this is written a little bit later. Um, Nehemiah is kind of putting this here to summarize his entire time as governor of Judah. It says this, Moreover, from my, my time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So he was the governor for 12 years, and basically the way the rest of this reads is how different Nehemiah was um, from the exploitive practices of the people. He says that when I was the governor, uh, I did not take the salary that was owed to me. I paid myself out of my own pocket. I didn't take the food allowance that was owed to me. Um, I pursued in hard work on the wall through opposition that when I was the governor, uh, that I set, in fact, a table uh, with 150 men and women. It says Jews and officials, which if you remember the story, Jews and officials means the, the rich and the poor, the offender and the offended. He set a table for them with 150 and included the nations, and he fed them out of his own pocket. See, our vision of justice is going as far as is required of us and then stopping. I'll say sorry, don't make me do anything else. Like, let's just move on, right? God's vision of justice is sacrificial and generous. It gives and it gives and it gives and it gives. And that's what we see modeled here by the servant governor. And our hearts are moved as we think about a leader like this. Our hearts are moved by Nehemiah, the servant governor, the sacrificial and the generous, because not because he's great, he's all right, but because we want a servant king. Not a servant governor, we want a servant king. See, Nehemiah, like Nehemiah, I should say, Jesus did not take the benefits that were owed to him, but rather he took on the form of a servant. Like Nehemiah, Jesus did not impose a heavy burden on his people. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Like Nehemiah, Jesus persevered in hard work through opposition, through pain, through suffering, even through death, death on a cross. Like Nehemiah, Jesus has prepared a banquet table at his own expense. It wasn't from his savings account, it was from his blood. A feast that's going to include the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the offender and the offended, Democrats and Republicans, the Jews and the nations. But better than Nehemiah, the feast that's prepared for us in his kingdom is going to encompass not just 150 people. It will encompass a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. Better than Nehemiah, Jesus didn't pay from his savings account. He paid with his life. See, while Nehemiah provides a window, he provides a picture of a servant leader, Jesus is the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. 
And the question um, that I posed at the beginning, how do we come back to the table? How do we come back to the table in a group of people that maybe just is so divided that we don't know how to move forward? How do we come back to the table when people have hurt you, people have views that you don't like, you don't know if you can be friends with them? How do we pursue reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in this room? It's not through a cultural vision of justice, I can tell you that. (laughs) It's definitely not through vengeance. It's definitely not through a stingy vision of justice where you just go as far as is required of you. The way back is through sacrificial love, it's through generous justice, it's through restorative justice. The way back is Jesus. He's the way back. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of a servant, or in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So church, my invitation um, tonight is that we come back to the table. The table that Jesus has set, table, the table that's set with people that you may not like, people who may have offended you, but that we come back and we come back um, in the name of being reconciled to one another and reconciled to Jesus. Amen? All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, we praise you that your vision of justice is not like our vision of justice. We praise you, God, that you are not driven by vengeance, um, but that at the same time, um, you call out, you call out the sin in our lives. You call us to come back. Thank you that you are restorative, God. We pray that um, the wounds that we've experienced, not just in this room, but in the church at large, Um, that we'd be able to pursue reconciliation with the people that have hurt us, that we wouldn't wait, that we wouldn't stand by and hope that they come and pursue us, but that we would reach out. God, bring to mind those people that only you know that we've offended, that we've hurt. Um, We pray that we would be a united people, that our witness would not be hurt by our internal divisions. We want your name to be known in this city. We want your name to be made great among the nations. Use us, even though we're broken. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.